takes time. And I'm afraid we have not been very understanding of that. You don't get raped and are better in two weeks. I don't care how much you believe in the grace of God. It doesn't work like that. You can't get run over and stand up and walk away. And it doesn't say anything about your faith. It doesn't say that, you know, if you just would forgive them and offer grace or accept grace or whatever, it would be fine. No, it takes a long time to heal. Hello and welcome to I'll Go First. I'm Jessica Minhas, the host and founder of I'll Go First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. Last week, I had the incredible opportunity to moderate a panel called Abuse of Power, How the Church Can Respond, which was originally organized by Restore NYC. Restore NYC is a, I mean, just astounding group of people and a nonprofit that supports the well-being of sex trafficking survivors. Please check them out. You will be amazed by the work that they're doing. Now, we've talked about spiritual abuse and sexual assault on the show before. It is something that we hear from our community about a lot, but in particularly how abuse and sexual assault in faith communities makes it that much more complicated to heal from and also to find justice for. So Restore NYC, along with Jay Stringer and Dr. Diane Langberg, brought together a panel of people who really can offer us a holistic perspective on the issues that surround abuses of power in the church. The panelists included Annette Catino, director of Lead NYC, Boz Chavinchian, attorney and founder of Grace, Dr. Diane Langberg, she's a psychologist and an author, Drew Hyun, he is the founder of Hope Church NYC, Jay Stringer, who I mentioned, he's a psychotherapist and author of Unwanted, highly recommend his book, and Faith Hucklemotor, she is the co-founder of Restore NYC. We discussed covert abuse, so spiritual, emotional, and over abuse, physical, sexual, and financial abuses, how abuse hides in plain sight, how to equip faith leaders to address their power and sexual story, and practical steps faith communities can take to protect those they serve. We also talk about what healing looks like and what you can do as a victim to fight back and receive justice. I hope you are encouraged by this conversation, and please remember you are not alone. We do mention some incredible resources in this conversation, and those links are going to be listed in the show notes below. I am so excited to hear what you think about this conversation. Please reach out to us at hello at I'll go first and let us know what you think. If there are more topics that you want us to cover on this, we would love to support you on your journey. So let's get started. Hello. Hello, everyone. Wow, I am so excited to be here. My name is Jessica Minhas, and I am your host for the evening. I am a journalist on mental health and human rights, and I also run a nonprofit called I'll Go First. We specialize in using storytelling to help people put words to that which is difficult and help them navigate trauma recovery and mental health care. So spiritual abuse is very near and dear to my heart. I am also a survivor of spiritual abuse and sexual assault within the church. So I couldn't be more excited to bring all of these perspectives and voices to you tonight. So what kicked us off in this conversation was unfortunately the recent passing and case with Ravi Zacharias. So you may know that in May 14th, 2020, Ravi Zacharias 
passed away. He was a legend when it came to apologetics. And in 2017, allegations arose from Lori Ann Thompson that there were some sexual harassment charges. As it turns out, and way back in 2014, this is when the allegations started. So the challenge for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has been navigating how to move forward and why was it so long that these allegations were not spoken about in the public and how did leadership turn their eyes? So it has been a real challenge for the Christian community as well. Those of you who loved Ravi, I know I looked up to him. And how do we balance that tension between both justice and mercy? So that is why we are here today. Today we are discussing how Ravi and church leaders in general, how are they able to get away with abuse of power for so long? And how do we respond to that? We'll also discuss some practical steps for church leaders, how they can prevent and address abuses of power in their church community. So before we get into it, I would love to introduce our just outstanding, incredible panelists. Thank you so much, all of you, for spending your evening with us. We are so, 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 so grateful. First of all, I would love to introduce Dr. Diane Lamberg. Diane is a globally recognized counselor. She has been counseling for over 47 years in clinical work for trauma victims. She has trained caregivers and church leaders on six continents on how to recognize and respond to trauma and the abuse of power in a healing way. Her most recent book is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Diane, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Oh, <laughs> where are you joining us from right now? Outside Philadelphia. Oh, okay. So I'm in Brooklyn, so we're kind of close to each other. You know, going into this conversation, it can be really tense. What is the posture that we can approach this conversation with? Well, I think that we would agree that talking about abuse in the church should be an oxymoron, and it is not. And I think because we know that we serve a God of truth and light and love, that actually when we are exposing things like abuse, we are doing his work. And yes. it's scary, and we feel and are vulnerable. We're full of grief when we find such things in uh, places like churches or Christian institutions, but we are doing his work. He's called us to speak the truth. He's called us to turn on the light. I love and, that. And um, we need to remember that's what we're doing. Yes, and that is why we are here today. And I just wanna applaud you. Thank you so much for joining us. And also to all of you watching right now, I know we have over a thousand people joining us tonight, which is so awesome. And it really speaks to what I think you're saying, Dr. Lamberg, about the church really rising up and taking a stand against abuse in the church and really examining ourselves as well. And so with that note, I'd love to introduce Drew. Drew is the founding pastor of Hope Church New York, a family of diverse churches in and around New York City. He's also the co-founder of the New City Network, a network of urban churches that value multi-ethnicity, spirit-filled ministry, emotional health, amen, and mission. Drew, you, um, you are coming to the table as somebody who is right now overseeing not just one church, but how many churches? Uh, yeah, it's a family of 10 churches here in the city. 10 churches. And how many how many congregants is that? Uh, I don't know. We don't really 
Yeah, I know that's kind of a, a, a silly. No, it's, like, it's a lot of yeah. people. What yeah, we're getting at is yeah. it's a lot of people to manage. And this conversation tonight is really about not only holding church leadership accountable, but also ourselves. And I just want to applaud you on all of the work that you're doing, navigating that, not just with yourself, but so many different pastors, so many different people in your church community. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's a just a really important task. And I'm deeply humbled to be here just because... I know this is a, a matter that is significantly important for church leaders and for myself. I know that I approach it with such fear and trembling, just knowing my own fallibilities and the fallibilities of so many um, of my colleagues and uh, some of the, of the things that we're unaware of as we come to the table around this issue. And hopefully a lot of those things can come to light so that we can be better equipped just to um, first become more aware of some of the dynamic tensions of our role, as well as our own shadow, um, the deep brokenness that we bring to our own profession and how we as pastors are to be wounded healers instead of people who transfer pain to others. Henry Nowen, right? Wounded Healer, Henry yeah. Nowen? Yep. Yes. I love him so much. He has amazing books. Wounded Healer is one of them, actually. So Drew, thank you so much for your vulnerability. I really respect and admire you for being so vulnerable here with complete strangers. Yes. Well, uh, it's nice that it's actually complete strangers, no, <laughs> but yes, absolutely. Faith, you, you do a lot of work as well with vulnerable populations. You've been in this work as a social worker for so many years. You and I actually met, met through Trinity Grace Church. Hello to everyone from Trinity Grace that is watching right now. You are the co-founder of Restore NYC, the reason we are here tonight, a nonprofit with a mission to make freedom real for survivors of trafficking in the United States. Restore specializes in housing, economic empowerment, well-being solutions, and well-being solutions for survivors of trafficking. Now, you and I had a chance to talk a little bit before this panel, and like I said, we've known each other for literally a million years. <laughs> Good thing we still look like we're 21. But uh, something that I've always admired about you is just how much compassion you bring to the work that you do. And more than that, how much you honor survivors and their dignity. And I think that personally that it, I have found in my own journey that when I first began in social justice work, that was really hard to remember that I wasn't just there to like serve them, but actually they were there to teach me a lot. What's been one of the biggest lessons over the last 20 years that you, if you could dial it down to like one saying, what's an easy task, right? What is the, the thing that comes to mind for you? Wow. Well, I think honestly, what you just said, which is survivors are the real teachers and we are the students and that we all should be sitting down and taking notes on life from them because when you experience that much pain and suffering and you experience the restoration that comes from that it is incredibly inspiring and their humility and their courage and their strength is something we could all learn from so yeah they're yeah. they're the teachers absolutely i i have found in, in my own journey that I run a podcast, I'll go first podcast, and we have survivors of all kinds. And I'm always astounded at how lively they are. And I always do have to take a step back and be like, wow, Dr. Dan Allender once said about how when we approach survivors, it's really about teach me what you know about surviving before we dive into how can I serve you? Correct. Yep. Annette Catino, you are coming in from the Bronx. 
the Bronx, New York. Hello, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome. You thank are you. the Director of Advance at LEAD NYC and yeah. the Senior Director of Team Development at Movement.org. You are a certified Christian counselor, and you also are certified in several emotional intelligence instruments and assessments. Um, you you also serve in a, a pastor capacity, is that is I'm that a, correct? That's correct. I'm an associate pastor at Harvest Fields Community Church up in the Bronx. Our lead pastor is Mitchell Torres. Wow. How do yeah. you do it all? By the grace of God, by God's <laughs> grace. You are um, by his grace. Yes, you are also a mom and something that you are super passionate about is really bringing up the next generation and really what is quality leadership? Yeah. What what is quality leadership? I think uh that's a great question, Jessica. Thank you for what you're doing here. I'm humbled to be on a panel with amazing people like you all and I'm grateful to be here. Just want to make sure that I say that. I feel like with leadership, leadership is about people. Leadership really is about, of course, we know leadership is about influence, but it's really about developing the people around you, creating environments where the people around you could be the best that they can be, calling out the, the gifts and talents and giving them the space to become the person that God already designed them to be. That's really what leadership is about to me. And I have the privilege of leading an organizational leadership development program at, uh, here in New York City for Lead NYC. I've been doing that for about nine years. We have about 500 or so alumni in this program. And the thing that made me super passionate about leadership was my own leadership journey and not the great experience that I had being led by certain leaders or leading but the times where I saw unhealthy leadership. Yes. Um, the yeah. times when I was an unhealthy leader and I was leading in a way that was not the best. And so the thing that like drives me is we are followers of Jesus. We should be the best leaders on the planet. Yeah. We have the I, spirit of God on the yeah. inside of us. And I know that's a, a tall, uh, uh, I, know that's, I know that's a lot to ask for, but we have Christ in us. And so leadership for us should be about being the best that we could be, being on that journey, because it is a journey. Leadership is a journey. It's about being the best that we could be and then bringing other people into that. I love that you're talking about creating a space, an actual physical space, and also yeah. an interpersonal relationship space. Yes. And I recently saw an interview with Oprah. She was like, you have to speak the gift into people. And I was yeah. like, what? That is profound. <laughs> that is profound. Can't she does to... that sometimes. I know. She's so great. <laughs> I, I can't wait to ask you more about that because that is really part of our job tonight is really to give the audience practical steps on how to take leadership and how to really redeem power in, in the church and in faith communities. We have Jay Stringer with us tonight. Jay, welcome to New York City. I know that you um, just recently moved here from Seattle. It's amazing. Yes. In New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome. You are a licensed mental health counselor. You are an ordained minister, an internationally requested speaker on the subject of unwanted sexual behavior, including extramarital affairs, the use of pornography, and buying sex. You are the author of an award-winning book, Unwanted, which is amazing. Highly, highly, highly recommend, which explores how sexual brokenness can reveal the way to healing. What I really love about your work, Shay, is that you are not just 
you're not just focused on speaking about theory, but you're also really passionate about diving into the data. I love that you've really incorporated that in, into the mission and the vision of, of, of your heart of ministry. Yes. Uh, yeah. When I was uh, preparing to write my book, Unwanted, one of the leaders in the field that I reached out to basically just said, Christians are exceedingly lazy people. And so he said, if you could actually do some research to validate some of these concepts that you're working with, uh, that would just be such a gift to the church. And that's so much of what I found is, I mean, especially with matters dealing with shame, unwanted sexual behavior, uh, most of the church's uh, approach to this has been just lust management, which is, you know, you slap a rubber band around your wrist, you get into accountability, put some internet monitoring on your computer, and we think that that's going to solve the issue. And so, yes, uh, the, the significance of doing research was to get some really important data on what is actually driving these issues. How many people did you actually survey for your book? Uh, just shy of 4,000 people 4, contributed people. to the research, which, 4, which is people. amazing about that is not just the number, but I can get into this later, but the questions that we were asking people got into family of origin, they got into arousal template stuff of what people were actually seeking out. And so just to underscore, there are so many people that were so vulnerable and generous with their stories. Thank you for the work you're doing. I know that this is such a touchy subject and I am so grateful that you're you're really on a mission to make this conversation come into the light because I think this is at the core of a lot of what we're talking about tonight, which is brokenness and how we try and get control over our brokenness and how that can lead to power struggles. Baz Chavidjian, you are coming in from my hometown, almost, Volusia County. You're in Deland right now. Absolutely. Yes. I, I Delightful Deland. Yes. Ah, delightful Deland. Yeah, I grew up about 20 minutes away from you in New Smyrna Beach. Yeah, that is, uh, that is when you told me that the other day, I was like, really? Nobody's heard of Deland. So that's, that's why cool. I thought, this is why I love Boz's work, <laughs> because you are taking on huge, huge people, huge ministries. You are an attorney, a former child abuse chief prosecutor, and a world-renowned expert on issues related to sexual violence. You are the founder of GRACE, a leading organization specializing in awareness, education, and investigations on sexual abuse handlings by religious organizations. You just recently left GRACE, and now you are focused back in, you are back in the, the prosecution seat, civil mm -hmm. litigation seat. Correct. Civil litigation. Yes. Not yes. Criminal, okay. Right? We will get we will get into this actually in a little bit because this is one of our questions: the difference between sure. prosecution, criminal, versus civil litigation. Sure. There are a lot of things that people who are victims of spiritual abuse can actually do within legal realm, and civil litigation is one of them. Why Why was it important for you to get back in this seat and in this realm versus the work that you were doing with Grace? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, you know, started Grace in 2004. Uh, Diane is uh, on our board and has been there from day one. In fact, Diane, I think you're sitting in in the same room we had our our first board meeting, <laughs> judging from the the background. But yeah, you know, you get to a point in an organization. I mean, I was also a full time law professor, so I was a, I left my law practice in 2008 went to go teach law at Liberty University. One of the reasons I wanted to teach law is I thought it would free me up time-wise to develop Grace, which we yeah. had started four years earlier. And, and in essence, it got that's that's exactly what happened. In Dodd's 
sense of humor, maybe he allowed Liberty University to help develop grace, but they don't know that. And so, you know, I did that for a while and two things real quick that happened. One was I had so many survivors coming to me increasingly over time who had been to lawyers, had been to lawyers who are supposed to be their greatest advocates, but who walked away feeling traumatized by them. And because oftentimes their lawyers didn't understand victimization, they didn't understand the culture and dynamics of faith communities. And I thought, man, I I understand all that stuff. I'm still learning it, but I understand it. And I'm a lawyer and I used to handle some cases before I went to, to, uh, to teach. Maybe I should jump back into that and, and to just advocate for these folks. They need an advocate. And the last thing they need is a lawyer who aggravates their trauma. Mm -hmm. And so did that. And then I had to decide, you know, do I step down from being a part of Grace as far as the executive director? And, you know, uh, I know what my my gifts are and what my gifts aren't. And the organization was at a time and place where there were other people who were better gifted than I to take it forward. And one of the things I, I have always bothered me, especially in the Christian world, are people who start these ministries and who can't let go mm-hmm. or who hand it off to their kids. <laughs> And I thought, man, that's this has never been about me. Somebody once said, when I think of grace, I think of you, Boz. And I, they were meaning it as a compliment. And I actually walked away going, okay, I feel really uncomfortable with that. And so it was just time. It was time to let go. And we've got a great new executive director, Pete Singer, who is who's just, he's so, many, he's so much more gifted than I am in so many more areas where grace is going that uh, it's just confirmation each day that that uh, that was the right decision. But I love being back in Florida and love advocating for survivors in the courtroom. I want to open up the next section of our panel where we really dive into the nuts and bolts of what uh, p- abuse of power is, because there's a lot of different dynamics to it. So I wanted to open up with a quote from Dr. Diane Lamberg's most recent book, which says, I pray this book will increase awareness and understanding of the power and its abuse so that we can protect and defend those who have been abandoned by Christianity's broken systems of power. For those who have been abused, my prayer is that in reading, you will feel seen, protected, believed, and comforted. And that is what we hope we can provide for you, the audience tonight in this conversation. Diane, I would love for you to start us off. There are so many elements to abuse of power, and I will be the first to admit that actually when I, when I was approached to do this panel, I didn't even actually know that term. And when we talk abuse about abuse in general, there are so many different versions of it. Can you walk us through what abuse of power looks like? Yes, I think it's important to start with the fact that every human being has power, whether we feel like it or not which what it really means basically is that you have the capacity to influence another. And at the beginning of the book, I talk about a newborn, you know, who can't do anything, but the newborn has power because if that baby cries at three o'clock in the morning, two very tired adults jump out of bed. So that's a lot of power. Yeah. But we don't really understand what it is. We don't understand how it's manifest. And we don't usually feel like we have it. We feel like other people have it. Mm -hmm. And so the book talks about different types of power. Physical is the most obvious. But people have verbal power, power of position, Mm. power of knowledge. I mean, we experience that we go to a doctor who asks us questions and tells, tells us something is wrong with us. You know, that's a lot of power. It is. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, emotional power, 
which we see in, in all of our relationships, financial power, spiritual power, people who know theology can quote scripture, you know, they have power with people about spiritual things. And the other piece is that many people have a, many of those types all in one person. Yeah. So people can use their, their knowledge, their position, their voice, their influence and all of those things as a pastor who can quote scripture and it's powerful power is what it is and uh, can easily control and do damage to many people one thing you mentioned in our conversation before is the uh, i never thought about this when we talk about abuse of power is silence and what we're talking about tonight is abuse in the church and how that manifests itself across all these different versions, covert and overt abuse. I just thought that was so interesting. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Well, sometimes it's helpful to give people like a very practical illustration. If I see you ready to cross the street and I see a car coming and if you go, you're going to get hit and I keep my mouth shut. I have had tremendous power in your life by doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously very damaging. And so when we look at abuse in the church and people have covered it up and and been silent and all of those things, they have used the power of silence to protect themselves or a particular institution rather than a human being. Yeah, (laughs) I think we're seeing that really right now in the narrative of the church right now. It's very prevalent. Yeah, I actually ran across a blog by somebody recently, and they were talking about excusing away the the signs of abuse, for example, with the case of Ravi. And something they said that struck me so much was this idea that if we're excusing them away and saying, oh, but the, by the grace of God, that could have been me, we should, really should be concerned. Because what we're saying is, oh, but by the grace of God, I'm, I'm not a pedophile. Yes. Yes. One quote that I love in actually an interview that you did with Raleigh Sadler in his book, Vulnerable, which I'm a big fan of, you said, in being aware of our power, you not only have to process your own vulnerability, you also have to process your power and be aware of it. Yes, most of us are aware of vulnerability in ourselves, where we feel small, not heard or whatever, but we're not really taught to think about our power. We don't experience ourselves as powerful. Even people who have tremendous power are often very anxious in those positions and keep wanting more because Mm. of thinking they're going to be criticized or they have been criticized or whatever. And they don't feel powerful at all. So we do have to acknowledge the reality that we have it. It was given to us by God. Mm -hmm. You know, he has all power and we were created in his image. So we have power, except that now it's all twisted up, just like everything else. (laughs) And so we we need to understand what we have, how it's twisted in us, and how we are not like him at all in our use of power. Yeah, I love what you're saying about we have to embrace the power that we have. And I think that can be sometimes a hard tension to to do, um, to not take up too much space, but to own the space as well. Faith, I I would love for you to talk about, from a service perspective, as the founder of Restore, you're seeing the abuse of power and those dynamics on the recovery side. What vulnerabilities are driving these abuses for victims? Well, Restore, our our focus specifically is on 
human trafficking. And the legal definition of trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to force another person to provide commercial sex or labor against their will. So it's the intersection of exploitation meeting the economy, and there's some element of profit there. But there are many, many forms of abuse, and we'll be talking about some of those tonight. And there's sex trafficking, there's prostitution, there's pornography, there's child abuse, there's sexual harassment, partner violence, physical, emotional, spiritual abuse, and more. But in my mind, I see all of these forms of abuse. They're like connected like a web. What connects them? So what connects them? I think there's a couple of things, but I would say that, and I also have to add that some of these forms of abuse lead to exploitation, which can lead to a crime. But at the center of this are systemic injustices. So racism, classism, poverty, uh, sexism, misogyny, homelessness, the foster care system, and, and there's many more. And what this means is that oftentimes those who traffic or those who perpetrate are seeking out weaknesses and vulnerabilities in victims that oftentimes stem from these systemic injustices. Oftentimes the victim knows or loves their trafficker or their abuser. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because when we think of sexual assaults, it's like this big overt thing, you know, like kidnapping and just violence. And I think the part that's been hard for me is that it's the grooming and the subtleness that becomes so insidious. And I think for me, it's been the hardest part to untangle when it comes to spiritual abuse. Can you talk a little bit about that grooming process? Yeah. So oftentimes survivors are there. The trafficker is a spouse, a friend, a neighbor. It could be a pastor. At Restore, we have worked with survivors who have been trafficked by their pastor or by members of their congregation. But when I mentioned the legal definition of trafficking, the the force, fraud, or coercion, it's typically coercive measures. They're manipulative. They're very persuasive. And it can start out by lavishing someone with gifts and love and attention. And over time, the person who traffics will build that trust. And then at some point, and I'm speaking from the perspective of trafficking specifically, they will offer a job opportunity or a way for that person to make money. And then in doing so, so for example, it could be like someone's boyfriend and they're, they know that they need a job I'll suggest to strip in a gentleman's nightclub for six days a week. And they'll do that for a while. And then they will make a suggestion that says something like, you know, you're really not making enough money. Maybe what you should do is go to the back of the room and provide sexual services because that will make even more money. Um, and the way that oftentimes victims are kept in this situation or kept in control is because there's a threat that this that the person who's trafficking them will expose them or shame them or threaten to kill a member of their family or someone that they love. 
but it also creates a scenario of something that's called trauma bonding, which is where the person who's being abused creates an unhealthy relationship with their abuser. And that typically comes about through a continuous cycle of abuse where there may be some element of punishment and reward that's involved there. Yes. Part of what is, what was the inspiration behind this conversation tonight was the Ravi Zacharias case. And I spent, I was up until 4.30 AM last night, just picking apart everything I possibly could about, about the case, about the statements, you know, his son, Nathan also has a blog defending him. And there's just so much, so much complication when it comes to these sorts of abuses within the church. And I, I know you, you have devoted your life to supporting leadership. From your perspective, when it comes to abuse of power, what do you see and how do you, how do you address it from, from your, within your work? Thanks. Thank you so much for that question. It's, uh, the focus really is not just necessarily on that leader, but uh, the organization and the systems that are in place around that organization and the leadership teams and structures that are in an organization. The thing that breaks my heart about Ravi's story is the many people around him that did not speak up in that organization. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because a lot of his uh, organizational, organizational leaders was his family. And that's an issue as well. That's an issue as well. And so as a, a leadership development coach, as a leadership development trainer, really the hope is that we'd be building organizations that have macro level systems, hmm. policies and bylaws, structures that exist that not only protect the people that we're serving, but protect the leaders themselves. Imagine someone called Ravi out and insisted that, you know, there'd be an investigation and he had to repent. He had to face uh, his brokenness because that's what we see was brokenness. And that's what happens with leaders. We're human beings and we all have brokenness. And so if, if there are systems in place that force you to deal with that brokenness and takes the, the responsibility out of maybe the one person's hand who's aware of everything that's going on and puts it um, on the shoulders of a structure, a group of people, it can help. It can help. Now, we all know of, of, of examples where entire boards have overlooked things. We do understand that. That's where it, at a macro level in an organization, you have some accountability to a board or a, a group of people outside of the organization. You have things like whistleblower policies. I mean, we think about this as only appropriate in, in, in corporate settings. It's needed even more in the nonprofit and ministry setting. We have to create organizations where people are safe. They're psychologically safe. Amy Edmondson does you know, masterful work on this where people feel comfortable and protected and safe to speak up. So for me, it's like I'm training leaders to build organizations where there are macro level systems where people are protected. And that includes the leaders protected themselves. 
Boss, I'd love for you to walk us through, you know, there in Ravi's case, and Annette, thank you so much for bringing up the systems that can be can be put in place. I know that in my own experience, the church that I was going to did not have that oversight. But in the Ravi situation, there was actually church oversight. And I came, um, not just church oversight, but they were under a denomination, I believe. And I came across the press release that they provided um, years ago. And it said that they did not find any cause for concern. And a lot of your work is supporting victims to try and navigate these policies after the fact. Can you walk us through this idea of safeguarding policies within in the church and the NDAs? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just say, too, I, I know we don't want to spend the whole evening talking about Ravi Zacharias because I think he's taken up too many people's lives already. But but, um, you know, this it's, it's always easier for organizations to speak and speak strongly about a, somebody who's dead. I always ask people, imagine all this because it did in 2017 surface when he's alive. And the reality is, I don't think we would be here today. Uh, I think that it would be it would be the same old, same old institutional self-preservation because Ravi Zacharias, and this is something we haven't talked about yet, brought in money, lots of it. People gave, not because of the assistant vice president, the RZIM. People gave, they gave because they loved Ravi Zacharias, which is all part of the problem with the structure, okay? Mm. But having said that, I'll move on. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, safeguarding uh, policies are important, but if they are just policies and are not part of the very DNA of the organization, they're worthless. And so you can have the greatest policy. I'm in the back of my office here. Uh, actually, I moved them over here. It's, it's the Constitution of China. And if you read it, you'd go, wow, this is, this is better than our own Constitution. The rights they give people. I mean, this is amazing. I want to go live there. And, you know, that's not the story you hear from a lot of people who who've experienced living there, especially years ago. And so, you know, you have to it has to become part of the very DNA of the culture of the organization. And, you know, that's a separate issue from this whole issue of NDAs and NDA for people who don't know is sort of a non-disclosure agreement, which is usually what happens when when somebody raises an issue or, or raises in, in my in my world a legal claim. and Let's say there's a settlement. Both sides come to the table and say, let's resolve it. And one side, the institution is going to hand over money because that's what we do in the civil case. And what do they get, get in return? They get in return that the case won't move forward. And what they often ask for is this non-disclosure agreement. Hey, we don't want you to speak any further about this. And, you know, until probably the Harvey Weinstein um, tragedy that's that that surfaced and we all really sort of fueled the me too movement a lot of people weren't really aware of ndas and then we start reading you know to catch and kill by ronan farrow is a, a really critically important book for people to read in this in this field but how they used ndas 20 30 page ndas uh with these vulnerable victims who were scared to death because they'd gone against this by this titan with his three or four law firms and they maybe have one lawyer and they make you sign it. And they say, if, if you break this, we're going to come after you with every every bit of energy we have with all of our law firms, and we're going to destroy you. So now you have somebody who's been victimized twice because they've been victimized by the perpetrator. 
And now they're victimized by the process because they live each day wondering what can I say and what can I not say? And are they gonna come after me? They live in this fear. And we do that sadly inside the church. Inside the church, we have churches settling a, a lawsuits and saying, hey, sign an NDA. And you know, with my clients, unless my client demands me to do it, um, I let the church know and the organization know, listen, if we're gonna have a discussion about a resolution, I wanna let you know right up front that a non-disclosure agreement is a non-starter, okay? Because when we go to trial, the whole world's gonna know. And even if we lose at trial, guess what? The whole world's gonna know. So that's your choice. But a lot of lawyers, uh, I think, and this is again, sort of one of the reasons I went back to this space, is a lot of lawyers really, I found, were manipulating and coercing their clients into signing these NDAs because then they would get the settlement money and the lawyer gets a percentage of that settlement money. And so the lawyer wants to get paid. And so they said, you better sign it. So it's, a, it's an abuse of power of the process, these, these non-disclosure agreements. And the fact that oftentimes they're coming from church lawyers is, is really troubling. And we can talk about this later, but I do wanna share at some point in time, what I've been seeing now that I'm back in practicing and I'm sitting in mediation rooms and I'm seeing sort of sort of the, the dark underbelly of how this stuff works and how churches are, are hiding behind legal counsel and hiding behind insurance adjusters and remaining silent in these processes has been, um, I don't know if it's been surprising to me, but it's it's still deeply, deeply saddening to me to see that uh, in these in this in this type of process. Yeah, you bring up hiding and with the actual legal process, Diane, when you and I were talking together recently, you talked about how do we know when there are predators in our midst? And one thing you mentioned was that you can't really can't. So what are what are the signs that we should be looking for? I think one of the first things we have to do is accept the fact that we can't really know. Hmm. We want to feel safe in our homes. We want to feel safe in church or anywhere. But, you know, we talk about wolves and sheep, but Jesus talks about wolves who look like sheep, which means you can't tell. And so to enter into a place of worship with that as an understanding is very difficult for us. We want to go into that and have it be a refuge. And because of that hunger that we have, which is understandable, we often sort of turn off our senses. We don't pay attention. Something bothers us and we say, oh, well, they were tired or they had a bad day or whatever. And so we do not pay attention to things that are troubling to us because we want a safe place. Mm. And if you work with anybody's work with domestic violence, we know that the victim often spends a long time trying to make it okay, not only to stop the violence, but to believe that it's okay. This is my home. You know, if that hadn't happened at work, it wouldn't have happened here. And so we, we have a difficult time living in the truth of the fact that this is not a safe planet and anything that humans do cannot be assumed to be safe. And none of us wants to live with that as a foundation. Then in terms of specifics, you know, when something troubles you, number one, uh, do you feel free to speak up? Or is there an atmosphere that lets you know? Mm -mm. Two, if you speak up, 
are you heard and treated with respect? Or are you immediately uh, told how to think differently? Or do you get anger? Or, you know, the response tells you about the other person. And so you need to pay attention to the truth of that information. If you are treated badly and you go to somebody else up the ladder, you have to do the same thing all over again. And again, we don't, we don't want to live this way. And I understand that. But it's the truth of the way that it is. And it's the truth, sadly, of the way that it is among people who call themselves Christians. No, it's, it's not like that particular sphere is a safe place. It's not. I've worked for almost 50 years with people who are victims of that space. Can you talk to me a little bit about what, what does healing look like? What does the aftermath look like? Well, first of all, it takes a lot longer than it did to get hurt. Wow. Yeah. Which feels and is really unfair. But I, I have a talk that I did years ago uh, in another country trying to help them understand what healing looks like. And I said it takes three things. It takes talking, tears, and time. But the talking part is telling the story, which at the beginning people either don't want to do, can't do, or we do it in tiny bits. It's hard and scary and sad work. That, that takes time. It takes tears. Many times when people have been abused and traumatized, they can't do the words and the feelings at the same time. It's overwhelming. So the tears come later often, or the tears come first and you have no idea why they're crying. You can't do both simultaneously at the beginning. And it takes time. And I'm afraid we have not been very um, understanding of that. You know, you, you don't get raped and are better in two weeks. I don't care how much you believe in the grace of God. It doesn't work like that. You can't get run over and stand up and walk away. And it doesn't say anything about your faith. It doesn't say that, you know, if you just would forgive them and, and offer grace or accept grace or whatever, it would be fine. No, it takes a long time to heal. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Jay, you you speak a lot about naming in, in your work as well and the journey of healing. One quote that you often talk about is you can only heal someone else in so much as you've healed yourself. Can you talk a little bit about how our sexual brokenness plays into the propensity to abuse power? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think part of what we have to wake up to is just this the reality that uh, the church has known for a really long time that people are abusing power uh, and that sexual misconduct has a very, very predictable course to it. And yet the church has done virtually nothing to avail itself to resources that could really help equip leaders for the power of their positions. 
and to protect church congregations from the misuse of power. And so I think we just have to be grappling with that question of why do we know so much and yet do so little? And so when I think about leaders, I think one of the big issues that is completely unaddressed with most leaders is a level of narcissism. So most of us are aware of the misuse of power that is kind of like smoke uh, that is gonna get detected by a smoke detector. Like, uh, you know, embezzling church funds or maybe something like sleeping with a parishioner. But most leaders have a baseline level of narcissism or a sense of shadow self to them. And so uh, at least when I was in high school, when I heard that phrase narcissism, uh, the reference point of this was this guy in my high school that didn't just want a Ford Mustang, he wanted a Ford Mustang Cobra, and he needed to not date a girl in our class, uh, but someone that was the most popular student in this other school. And so we use this phrase that, you know, a narcissist was someone who was full of themselves. And yet what I've learned, you know, clinically and theologically is that narcissism is not actually an inflation of self, narcissism is actually rooted in not knowing who you are. And so another way of saying that is most leaders today that are running churches and organizations have a reflected sense of self. And so they don't know who they are unless they have uh, their platform, their followers, their downloads, their book sales reflect back to them their worth. And so what ends up happening for a lot of leaders is they get caught up into that notion of celebrity, that notion of the more appealing I am, uh, the more that I will validate myself. And so what I want you to hear in that is not just a sense of arrogance within leaders, but really uh, a sense of unaddressed pain. And so one of the things that I think church leaders really need to do is on one hand, we need to seek to address our narcissism, our shadow self, but we also have to step into the ways that we have known harm as leaders. And so to Diane's just brilliant point of, uh, I think this is a quote somewhere, but uh, you know, a leader is most at risk of misusing their power the moment that they feel powerless. And so uh, leaders need to hear that, but it's not, the solution is not just to stop abusing your power. The solution is to go back into the formative stories of your life where someone humiliated you, where someone used power in a way that uh, brought you into a level of powerlessness. And so Father Richard Rohr, in uh, one of my favorite quotes, says, the pain that we do not transform, we transmit. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to. And so um, that's been a huge healing process for my own story, my own journey, is to really step into, yes, I have done harm to others. But to have integrity um, as a leader means that I need to go and enter into those formative stories of where power and authority has been used against me. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 4, where he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The reality for almost all leaders is that they developed not godliness, not gospel-centered leadership, but they developed a sense of talent, a sense of uh, a way to maneuver out of the tragedies and heartaches of their life through competency, uh, through success. And so I think that's part of the clarion call of this moment is, you know, the abuse of power is going to start out in very subtle ways. 
And we're not always aware of that growth, but all of us have unaddressed pain that if we are not moving towards that, grieving it, uh, we are going to use other people in our ministry uh, to reflect back to us our worth. And we're gonna use our ministries basically to serve our ego at the end of the day. Drew, you're doing a lot of work based on the work that Jay is doing with your reflected self and your shadow self. Someone in leadership, how are you approaching this sort of reckoning with yourself? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it was so good what you shared, Jay. Um, you know, I once read this one study that said 90% of people think they're in the top 1% of self-awareness. And so, I mean, there's only a few of us that are in that one, top 1%. One so um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, I think for pastors, if you're a pastor or a church leader, I think absolutely we need to be, I think there are two things that we are often unaware of, or I'll speak in the eye. I'm often unaware in my journey as a pastor of how much power I have. And kind of like what Diane was saying, uh, I, I didn't realize the power I uh, wielded when I was having a bad day. And just one little remark that can um, really influence the dynamic or a culture of a room um, because of the position that I'm in, because of uh, my title. And, and so for me, there's been a growing awareness around my own power and really how do I then leverage that power in a redemptive way? So I think that that's number one. I think the second thing that Jay mentioned is the whole becoming aware of our own shadow. And I think for myself in leadership, what I've realized is the greater that I've been entrusted with a certain kind of power, I realize the more unaware I've become of my own kind of foibles and shadows. However, I could probably feel it whenever I feel that kind of angst or secret ambition or that feeling of insecurity that comes. And my work has been to try to continue to delve deeper into my own shadow, to look into my family of origin, to take regular moments of Sabbath keeping and contemplation and confession and meeting with a counselor, meeting with spiritual directors, and having a real kind of weekly reminders from my wife, <laughs> who often will be the one who tells me the truth about myself. And I, I think um, the regular practice of um, self, kind of delving into self-awareness, of, of delving into my own shadow, uh, my own family of origin, and realizing that even my background of, uh, I came from a family with high abuse, high violence in my own family, and the process that I've had to go through now of as a church leader of kind of that quote that Jay just mentioned, that pain that is not transformed is transmitted. Uh, I need to really come to terms with the pain that I've experienced and how often even being un unaware of it, how often I can transmit that pain. And so that takes a lot of work. Um, one of the practices that me as a pastor that I've, and that our church board has really kind of encourages, I take a three month sabbatical every three years uh, and this is in addition to actually Sabbath keeping and vacations and a three month sabbatical every three years. Um, not only is it it's meant to be restful for my wife and I, but it's actually also a practice for me of giving up power of almost acting as if I'm dying and the organization needs to be given away to someone else in leadership. And for me, what, I, what it's really taught me is sabbatical. Like I thought, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. And my first month of sabbatical, it was awful. I felt unimportant. I felt like no one needed me, which was, again, something that I grew up with, which was part of the, the, the reasons why I became a pastor. And 
but I realized the practice of letting go of power, of the practice of dying to self, is one that I really need time and time again, because I realize that I am my own worst enemy when it comes to these things, because of my own past, because of my own pain. And uh, so I think that the regular spiritual disciplines of before God, of letting go of power, of having feedback loops around us that are speaking truth to those things and to those urgings that are not of God, I think are very necessary. Diane, you do a lot of work on the entire spectrum of working with people under abuse of power. You also, you work with the, um, the victims and you also support leaders to be their best selves. What would you say to, to leaders right now who, who might be struggling with finding that balance? I would encourage them to admit it first. You know, when you're in leadership and you feel weak or you're struggling, you're not functioning the way you usually do, whatever, the first impulse is to cover it up because you're in leadership. People will be upset, you know, whatever. And um, to have the humility to speak the truth about that to yourself and then to some trusted people and to seek help because you need other heads to help you think through what you need. Um, you can't do that by yourself. You know, you'll you'll fight with yourself uh, with no good outcome. And so I, I think it's very important. I, I also think that leaders, the whole church really, we have made our faith about externals, numbers, all kinds of money, fame, whatever. We haven't taught seminarians and things to look at their characters and, you know, just like, like Jay was talking about. And we have seen leaders, good leaders, as having these great gifts and these great outcomes. And so the pressure on them is huge. And they, don't, they can't look at themselves and see something small or weak or not right because everything will come crashing down. But the fact is, when we're not doing well, if we have the humility, to step aside and look at ourselves and things like that, we end up looking at our character, which is whether you have a big church, small church, or a falling down church, is to be Christ-like. That's what makes the body of Christ. Not all these other things that we protect when we cover up sexual abuse and things like that. One thing that you and I also talked about is, is navigating the, the tricky waters of the offender. Um, what do we do with the offender if they are still at church? And you had some really, really interesting things to say, very direct things to say about that. What what do we do with the offender and and the offender's family? You know, because there is a fallout for them as well. There is. And you know, if anybody's interested in it a little bit more than they'll get tonight, there's I did a blog about that, which is on my website, so people can read about it. But I, I, when I'm dealing with that, it's usually about someone who has abused a child. And churches typically want to forgive and offer grace and have everything be nice. And a part of what I say there is when, when people ask me, what do you do with a sex offender in your church? Is not uh, my first answer is, do you don't have him in your church? And the reason for that is that we don't wake up. I, I don't have to be afraid I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and abuse a child. That's not how it happens. It takes a long time of deceit and little by little building up something and being okay with it, even if it stings a little, and then doing it again and it doesn't sting anymore. 
And so you, you can't be caught and stop. And so number one, you would have somebody, uh, a child offender sitting in a pew, looking at all the children during worship, doing all sorts of things in his head, which will be breaking down anything that he's doing to try and deal with these issues. Number two, every adult victim in the church will be very aware and it will be hurtful to them. The other piece that we miss flat out is what we're doing to the perpetrator. We are putting somebody who has done evil and can't stop in a place where it can still happen over and over and be fed and thought about and planned in the head. We're not loving the abuser. And so I have advised churches through the years, you take the church to the abuser. And so, you know, where churches, several adults, no children in the house, meet once a week. They do church with the, the, the offender. They play and listen to the sermon from the week and talk about things. They have access to his parole officer and everything else. And I often, I think I probably mentioned this, tell the story of, some, of a church that did that years ago. And they did it for two years. And they were starting to get a little antsy, you know, do we need to keep doing it, whatever. And they called and I said, yes, you need to keep doing it and whatever. And a few months later, they called me and they went to his house to meet with him one Sunday or whatever day. And he wasn't there because he'd taken a plane to Thailand looking for children after two and a half years of that work, which of course was devastating to them. But it, it turned a light on for them. You can't practice things like child abuse and turn out fine in a few months. And again, as Christians, we want to say, well, God can do anything. Well, he can, but he put us in time. And we're people who, when we practice something, we get better at it, whatever it is, good or bad. And he doesn't break those things that he created like that. And so we need to learn how to love people who do things we don't understand and protect them from themselves, not yeah, just protect others. Yeah, protect them from themselves. That, that really stood out to me when we talked before and this idea of action. Boz, I, I wanna go to you as, as we sort of wrap up this section and really, if you could offer us, offer us some practical steps for victims. One thing that did come up a little earlier in our conversation tonight was the, what, what victims can actually do outside of criminal prosecution. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, just in, in so much that I learned from survivors, they first and foremost, it takes oftentimes, and everybody's different, so much in so many ways to begin to even grapple with what's happened to them. Some, especially in the church, don't even realize that it, they don't even realize what's happened to them has a name, especially adult clergy survivors, I have found are still struggling with the fact that they're a victim of abuse because they're being told by everybody and in the church culture that it was an affair. And so this, this sense of shame is so profound with victims that, that when they do step forward, and not most don't, and most don't because they don't feel that they are in a safe space to do so, especially inside the church. But when they do step forward, how are we receiving them? How are we responding to them stepping forward? I was just telling somebody this morning, I said, I can't tell you how many clients I have whose child was sexually violated 
either at church or by an employee of the church. And once they stepped forward and informed the church of what happened, it was very shortly thereafter that they found themselves without community. They were on the outside. So here they had heard for years, we're a church family, we're going to do life with you. And we're, and they, the victims, reported what had happened to their child. And now they're in a Walmart seeing a, a person they thought was a dear friend from church. They catch each other's eyes and the person turns around and walks the other way. That's why they don't step forward. Because they don't want to lose community. Because to Christians, church oftentimes is their community. And to risk losing that, oftentimes I've found survivors who said, I'd rather suffer in silence than risk losing this community. What a horrible choice we've given them. But when they do step forward, yeah, we have to be prepared to be able to provide them the option. So criminal, criminal prosecution is one. And the best way I can say this is this. Criminal prosecution focuses on the offender, the acts of the offender. It's the state of whatever state you're in. So I'm in Florida, the state of Florida versus John Smith. John Smith is the offender. We're going to prosecute him for the crime he committed against you. And as a result of that, he could go to prison. Every client that comes to me for a civil case, I always ask, has this been reported to law enforcement? Because I think it's absolutely imperative to do. But the, there is another, and, and, and these, are not, uh, these are not distinct. They can, you, they can happen at the same time. The other option is civil. Civil focuses on not the as much as the on the offender, but on the institution that failed in some way to protect that person from being offended. Can you speak and, a little bit more about that? Because something you mentioned was that survivors also don't realize or feel comfortable receiving money from yeah. from their experience. Can you say a little bit more to that? Yeah, a lot of times, you know, when I when I meet with clients, they say, "Well, it's not about the money." And I say, "Well." Part of it should be about the money because are you seeing a therapist? Yes. How are you paying for that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, but I'm paying. I've gotten some insurance, but I've got to make the co-payments. And, and how, who's going to be paying for that five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Who's going to pay for that when mom and dad aren't around anymore? Because your therapy will go, could go throughout your life. You know, you may have seasons where you don't go to therapy and then something triggers you and you got to go back to therapy. That costs money. And the entity that should be financing that is the entity that's responsible for your hurt. And, and so that's the church. Now, the fact that it takes a lawyer to require and demand the church to do that versus what I would hope a Jesus-loving church would do, and that is initiate that and say, whatever it takes, we're going to walk with you through that, including money. And so I just would say to survivors who are wrestling with this whole notion, okay, I want to report it, this is a crime, but but yeah, there's, there's tremendous financial loss. I want you to not feel guilty about that because that's something that you need. And, and the other thing I would say about civil, we could talk a lot about this, but the other thing I would say about civil that's very different than criminal is in criminal, the victim is the primary witness in the case, but the party is the state of Florida and the defendant. In the civil case, the victim is the party. And I tell my clients, you, unlike the criminal case, in a civil case, you are in the driver's seat. This civil case will be a process that I'm going to do whatever I can to help you reclaim the power that you lost. And part of that is the fact that you, your name's going to be on that pleading. You are going after them and holding them accountable. And if, we, if the case needs to be settled, you are going to be the one empowered to make that decision. 
If you want to go to trial, you will be the one empowered to make that decision to go to trial. And so even if the end of the trial is not what we want, I still have to believe that the pro most of the time, not always, the process can be a very healing process for a survivor because even though the jury may disagree with them, the very fact that they stepped forward and they took that secret that the, the offender was hoping that person would go to their grave with and they exposed it into, a, into the public in a courtroom um, is very empowering for survivors and they take some of that power back and uh, I'm just privileged to be part of that process and to and to watch them do that. And I learned so much from them uh, during that process. So yes, criminal, but also always consider if you're a survivor today in many states, this is the last thing I'll say, but many states have opened up what they call look back windows, which means that by the time somebody goes forward, says, I wanna bring a lawsuit, they check with a lawyer and the lawyer says, well, the statute of limitations has expired, which means that the, the doors of the courthouse have shut for you to go forward because so much time has elapsed. Well, a number of states now have created these look back windows that say, listen, for one year or two years, those doors are gonna be open. And if you've got a claim, you can walk through those doors. And so if you are somebody who has, has suffered in that way, that's something that you should at least consider and, and speak with a, a, a an attorney who handles these types of situations and at least get, the information so you can make an informed decision as to whether you should take that step or if you choose not to that's that's also your you're empowered to make that decision as well Boz, as you're talking about you know stepping forward and i the thoughts have been ringing through my head while everyone has been talking is this idea of not being scared into silence and diane one of the questions that we received from the audience what is the best way to move forward for healing and how do you recommend the process of finding a healthy church that understands power dynamics well i think probably it has to start uh before that in the sense that part of what victims need is a, a safe person or two who will hear their story and walk with them uh, and encourage them it, it, I mean, sometimes victims have to do it all alone, and that's just awful. That's more wounding on top of wounding. But if somebody can find one person or two people they know who have proven to be safe in their life and who will walk with them as they make these decisions, they will also help them process things. So if they think, for example, you know, if you're going to go to that church over there, we're going to go with you to visit it and see what it's like and we're going to be honest with you about it you know so you have other eyes and ears and voices in your life and you're not alone you know you don't want to be alone and but it has to be safe and um you know many most I mean, a lot of victims of course get into therapy that's another voice most of the victims i see aren't in a hurry to get into a church especially that happened there even those that are tend to be cautious. And I think that's wise, even if you haven't been abused, <laughs> you know, because we, we want to see what, what it's like and how power is handled there and things like that. So it's a great loss to, to be abused in a church and lose that church. It's a huge loss, but it needs to be recovered carefully and slowly and with other eyes and ears besides your own. Oh, gosh, that is wisdom. Annette, you and I spoke earlier about your experience in also leaving the church 
And I'm wondering as a leadership coach, as someone who, who really understands this from the leader perspective and training other people, what are some signs of a healthy church and how do you know when there is healthy leadership? Oh man, that's a great question. I don't know if I can fully answer that. Part of it is uh, leadership where there's transparency, where there's a space where things are, are openly spoken about that typically you would not see an environment where these things are spoken about. Leadership when you're closer to leaders, not necessarily you're in the pew. Like let's say you're a part of a leadership team and you're with a, a around a senior leader. That's when you can really tell the health of an organization because you're looking for the health of that leader. So that leader should model things like creating a culture where it's safe to speak up, creating a culture where people are not punished when they uh, say something negative, creating a culture where uh, feedback is, is it's, a, it's a feedback friendly organization or feedback friendly leader who makes it really super comfortable. They're, they're, they're soliciting feedback, they're asking for feedback. And then again, people are not being punished for speaking the truth. And then Jay talked about the narcissist, our narcissism. And I think probably people, the majority of people listening, not to minimize anyone's experience or discount anyone's experience, has probably experienced a narcissistic leader more than they have been in a situation where they were physically or sexually abused. And I'm not, not saying that those things don't happen. And when you're looking for a, a healthy church, you wanna look for a healthy leader. Of course, the leader is the one who um, creates the culture. It's really the yeah. leader who creates the culture. You wanna look for someone who exhibits some humility where it's not always about them or everything that occurs isn't shaped or spoken of in a way where it's how it affects me or how it impacts me. Or I'm all of a sudden, you're telling me about your situation and then I become the center of that story. You're looking for, for places where there's humility, where people matter more than the person, genuinely, genuinely. And when you see that kind of leader, you'll see an environment where people matter, where people matter. And, and that won't be the, the, the perfect place, but it'll be a place where potentially there's health. And then the other thing, how do you, how do you know when, when, how do you know if a church is healthy or organization is healthy is ask people who've worked in the church or who've worked in the organization really at that. That's one of the best ways to find out what's happening in an organization. Even if you look at organizations where there's high turnover, where the staff is, is, you know, there's a revolving door, you'll, you'll be able to tell that that's a place where there, there potentially could be unhealthy leadership or abuse of power. I think um, have, raising your voice is so, I, I think Boz, Diane, everyone on the panel, you're really speaking to raising your voice and, and feeling, knowing that you have power. This is something that I'm taking in. Drew, actually, we have a question that, that came to mind from one of the audience members. They say, my daughter's youth group leader seems to be a narcissist. Um, I think this goes to Annette, what you were just speaking about, and has set herself as unique and su supernaturally gifted by God. If I go to the pastor and speak out against this popular leader, the narcissistic leader will do what she can to harm my family, and probably no one will believe me. I am a single mom. What can the weak do when we are the ones who are abused? How can we speak out when we are pretty much powerless and will only bring retaliation upon ourselves and our family? 
Yeah, wow. Um, first, I'm so deeply grieved that something like that in the church is happening. I, I want, I would encourage the person, like Diane was saying earlier about power, you do have power in this situation. And I think being mindful of that power and what are you going to do with that power? To bring it up, obviously churches, hopefully systemically, you know, we've talked about kind of non-systemically pastors really need to get into really the stuff below the surface related to my own shadow. But systemically, even then pastors still cross lines inappropriately and have a shadow side. And that's where the systems come in place that Annette was talking about earlier. And so in that system, I would hope and pray that that there's someone who you can go to, who you can make mention of this. Otherwise, I do think it is appropriate to leave that church really out of protection over your daughter and the person that you care about. Jessica, can I just pick up right there where, where Drew yes, just left please. off? Yeah. That, that I'm so glad that Drew, that you actually said that because you're probably giving people permission to have the idea and the thought that it is actually okay to leave places where there are unhealthy environments or you yourself are being abused. And I would just say, and, and this woman said it, she really already did it and said it, but yes, you have power. Yes, you can leave. You, you, what I say to people is you can't leave without speaking up. You cannot leave without speaking up. Even if you're speaking up on your way out the door, you have to speak up for two reasons. One, if you put yourself in that, if, if you if you just think about, okay, uh, um, what are you going to be accountable for? And and sometimes we don't realize this. And I don't want to put shame on on a person who's being abused for not speaking up. But we do have a voice, and we can use it. If we count the cost, and there will be a cost, you will lose community, you may lose a position or a title, there's absolutely going to be a cost. There will be a cost. And so you just have to accept that and, and recognize that and expect it. But you, you, you do not have to allow yourself to be abused. You can leave. But again, you have to speak up. Think about if it's, you know, it is you. So you want, you would want someone to speak up on your behalf. What if it's your daughter? Like it's your daughter. You want someone to speak up. And so you have to do what you want. What you would want somebody to do for you. You have yeah. to do that. I you love absolutely that. have to do that. And I, I just say the very fact that the, 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 this person's question says, if I say something, I actually fear being harmed by this youth leader. Uh, yeah. speaks volumes. I mean, and, and yeah, I think everybody's right here. It's, it's like, I tell people oftentimes, remember that church is not a prison, like you it's can not, go you, now. It's not easy because it's community. And I get that, but you can walk out the door. And part of that requires you to stop caring so much about what everybody else thinks. And that's hard, especially inside the church. It really is. Thank you so much for sharing your evening with us. Restore has developed a, a some suggestions, and we will also be sending this out to you. Seven things that you can do to redeem power, identify your power and not just your immorality, pursue healing, educate, require continuing education, require legal policies. Boz, you're speaking to that. Annette as well, equip leaders. Diane and Drew, you do that work so well. We also will be providing direct resources a lot of, um, there's so many questions. I wish we had time, but 
hopefully some of these resources I'm about to list off, you can find some, some of the answers to your questions. If you would like to speak to a trained crisis counselor right now, you can text go first to 741-741 to speak with a counselor 24-7 for free. You can visit all go first to find support and resources for trauma recovery care and to listen to stories of other survivors and share your own at www.allgofirst. Jay, you have a lot of questions about purity culture, about how to address um, sexuality in the church. If you would like to read Jay's book, highly recommend Unwanted or explore counseling services and group support for sexual brokenness, addiction, and recovery, you can visit Jay's website at www.jaystringer.com. Diane's work is prolific when it comes to abuse of power. She is also she also trains leaders. You can visit her website at dianelaneberg.com. The MEND Project, if you would like to find support for covert abuse, like emotional incest and spiritual abuse, please do visit themenproject.com. And for legal resources, we just put Jay's website in the chat as well. And then there's he also is, as we mentioned earlier, the founder of Grace. I, I just wish we could go on for hours. Jay, if you don't mind, thank you to everyone for joining us tonight. Could you offer a benediction as we close? Absolutely. Yes. One thing that I want to acknowledge uh, that it, it, it's that the, the church can so often be a petri dish of abuse. And so just the reality, when I heard everyone talk, one of the things that I'm aware of as I went through my ordination process is I counted up yesterday, I took about 240, 250 credit hours uh, between undergraduate and then multiple graduate degrees. And guess how many classes in human sexuality I had? One. We had an ethics class, but it virtually touched on nothing with regard to power. So then you hear all these stories after story after story, and here's the reality. One third of all women have past histories of sexual abuse. One in six men have past histories of sexual abuse. 57% of our pastors are struggling with porn. 64% of our youth pastors are. Um, so I hope what you begin to see is, I mean, there is so much unaddressed trauma coming into the church. There's so much unaddressed trauma and pain and entitlement among the leadership. And so, uh, I mean, part of this benediction is also a clarion call to all of you who are listening um, that the six, seven of us cannot do this alone. Uh, we need to wake up and we need to uh, recognize that if we're following Jesus, Jesus has conferred upon each of us a kingdom. Some of us are pastors, some of us are leaders, some of us are psychologists, some of us have means of uh, you know, financial influence. And so if we are going to actually create a church that is not a petri dish for abuse and trauma to continue, we are all going to have to do our part to begin to address this. So I'm going to read Isaiah 61 as a way of offering a closing benediction. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Uh, but this is what good power looks like. Power uh, that is used and deployed for the sake of the other. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor 
in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. The word of our Lord. Thank you all for being part of this uh, webinar and just also want to say thank you to Jess as well for all of her work to address this very diverse panel. And so we hope that this has been a blessing to you, uh, to your community. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Good night. All right, thank Good you. Night. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>